Uh, good morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that. Meet me over in James chapter 4. If you don't have one, that's okay. It's going to be on the screens, but let me just encourage you, every week we go through verses of the Bible throughout the entire fall. We're in the book of James. Matter of fact, we have these James journals. If you don't have one of those, we can get you one, uh, but just follow along with us through that. One of the things I want to remind you of this morning, it's really easy as you go through um, sermon series to to miss the forest through the trees, right? Because what you do is you take little sections of Scripture at a time and, and you talk through those and you, you kind of miss the whole point. I want to remind you that James has a point. It's, this is a, what, what you would call as New Testament wisdom literature, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's not like any other book in the New Testament. James gives you 54 imperative statements. Those are statements that say, do this, do that, do this, do that. And they're all this one common thread to show you that if you will just do the things that God is calling you to do, it actually will change your life and it'll bring God's kingdom down. Now, that's really the point of the book of James. It's one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. And, and one of the things you've got to realize is this, is that these early believers that James was writing to in around 40-something A.D., they were the seeds that went into the soil of Christianity that made the gospel flourish so that we, 2,000 years later, are worshiping King Jesus. You, you realize this, this movement of billions of people that follow Jesus started with a couple persecuted believers that were scattered throughout the world. If you go back to James chapter 1, James tells you that he wrote this book from Jerusalem to the diaspora, or, or if you will, common language, the refugees that, that, that got moved throughout the world because of their faith. So, so the Roman Empire thought that they were squashing Christianity, and yet 10 years after Jesus' death, what God was doing is he was taking those very first Christians to move the gospel throughout the world. And, and, and this is how God has always worked. Historians tell us by the end of the first century, there were about 8,000 believers in the known world. Now think about this. There was about 200 million people in the world at that time. The, the, the stats about America, I think there's close to 400 million people, so about half of the U.S., and only 8,000 people were followers of Jesus at that time. That is a small subset, and yet by the end of the third century, historians like Rodney Sark will tell you that over 50% of the known world became followers of Jesus, so much so that the political pressure on Constantine to become a Christian, if you will, had shifted so much that the world was changing. Think about that. It all started with just a couple people that were scattered throughout the world, and just 300 years later, over half of the known world was following Jesus, and today, there are billions of people that follow him. Here's the big idea for today. God knows exactly what he is doing, and you can trust him with your life. And that's, that's where we're going. Even when it doesn't make any sense, God knows exactly what he's doing and you can trust him with your life. One of my favorite stories of all time is about a missionary named Adoniram Judson. Judson, he was born in the early, or lived in the early 1800s and, and he became a missionary in Burma, which is now modern day Myanmar. Before he went to Burma, he was so influenced by another missionary named William Carey that he went to Kolkata, India to go be with Carey. Now, one of the coolest parts of my life is I got to travel to Kolkata and go spend time in the church that William Carey baptized Adonai Judson in. It was pretty incredible. Well, Judson was so moved by Carey that he wanted to spend the rest of his life telling people about this Jesus. He was moved by this statement Carey made. William Carey said, expect great things from God, 
and do great things for God. That was his life statement. Expect great things from God and do great things for God. Well, Judson did just that. He moved to Burma and he started telling people about Jesus. Now, here's what was really cool is that Judson's story was super unimpressive. Here's what I mean. He spent 12 years telling people about Jesus in Burma and only 18 people came to faith. Imagine that. Imagine we came here to Alpharetta to start a church and 12 years later, only 18 people were worshiping Jesus. I'm telling you, that would be really difficult. In the eyes of most people around here, you would be a failure. Y'all, but that's what God does. God takes the faithfulness of a certain group of people to plant seeds into the ground, and it takes a lot of hard work tilling soil, doing hard work, giving your lives a thing, and then one day, all of a sudden, the harvest just takes off. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but that's how bamboo works. For about five to six years, when bamboo goes into the ground, you never see it. And then when it comes up, you can't get rid of it. That's how God's kingdom works. And what I just believe is that most of us, most of us will miss out on the great things that God is doing in our lives because we just quit too soon. It's hard. It's hard. You work really hard. You till the soil. You think, God, where are you? I've done everything and you're not showing up. And God's like, you're just quitting too soon. Just keep going. Because it's in the waiting that God tends to form you into the type of person I tell you this all the time. God cares just as much as doing something in you as he does doing something through you. So he's forming you into the type of person that he can use. Well, anyway, Judson, Judson falls in love with a girl named Anne, and he wants her to come join him on the mission field, and he realizes that his, heart, his life is super difficult, so he writes her dad a letter, and listen to what Judson says to her dad. He says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part ways with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecutions, and perhaps even a violent death. Can you consent to this for the sake of him who left a heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing, immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in a world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise, which shall resound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? No, I cannot. That's what I would have said. I got two girls. I'm like, you, you come at me like this? No, I ain't. She did, though. And you know what's crazy? Everything in this letter became true. She had three kids. The first one was a miscarriage. The second one, her baby died at eight months. The third time, her baby died at six months. And then she, after 11 years, died of smallpox. Y'all, in 11 years of ministry, she saw 18 people come to faith. 18. But God, listen. But God did more than they could ever ask or imagine. You realize that historians will tell you by the end of Judson's life, over 8,000 people had come to faith, and there were planted over 1,000 churches. And in Myanmar today, you can trace the 2.5 million Christians back to Judson's faithfulness to his family, to God, and the sacrifices that they made. Here's the question I have for you. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? Was every sacrifice he made worth it? Listen, if you believe the gospel, the answer has to be a resounding yes. 
See, right now, right now, I just want you to know, Adoniram Judson is okay. He's standing with King Jesus, worshiping with millions of followers of Jesus who came from Myanmar that were impacted through his faithfulness and church was planted. He is worshiping with his wife and his kids because they leveraged their lives for the sake of the gospel. Like William Carey said, expect great things from God and do great things for God. The only problem is most of us won't do it long enough to see or reap the rewards of it. See, it's only possible when you believe the gospel. It's only possible whenever you truly believe that God has a narrative or a story bigger than yours, that he really does know what he's doing, and you can trust him with your life. That's what I want to challenge you with today. I want to challenge you to believe the gospel and leverage your life for the sake of the gospel. So if you have God's word, pick me up in verse 13 of James chapter 4. Listen to what James has to say. He says this, come now. It's an invitation. It's almost an imperative. Come now, rhetorically, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there in trade and make a profit. You know, this is a mindset problem that the first century church has begun to have. If you see the, the maturation process of their life, in James chapter 1, you have a desperate group of Christ followers who have, have been leveraged everything, lost their homes. They're all over the known world at this time. By the time you get to James chapter 4, they're so comfortable with where they are in their lives that they don't even think about God anymore in their decision making. I would say that this probably is the same exact thing that most of us do. We probably get so comfortable in our abilities and our discernment that oftentimes we make big decisions for our lives and we do it because we're, we're wise people, we're smart people. We've leveraged things and yet we do it without God. You see, you make your decision about your job most of the time based on how much money you're going to have or your upward mobility. You make decisions about the neighborhoods you're going to live in based on where your kids are going to go to school or, or the sports teams that they're going to play on. Listen, nine times out of ten, when I have conversations with people who are making decisions, are literally, most of the time, they're volunteering me the decisions that they made about where they're going to move or the jobs they're going to have or the neighborhoods they're going to go to. Nine times out of ten, God never shows up in the equation. It's, it's the job opportunity. It's where we're going to go. It's what we're going to do. What, what if... What if we shifted that mentality and we relied on God? James is saying that this is what started happening in the first century church. They got so comfortable and confident in their decision-making abilities that they made imperative statements like, we will go into such and such a town. We will do this. We will spend time there. And watch what he says. He says they did it to make a profit. They didn't do it to serve God. They did it for their own gain. And listen, listen, listen. God's not against making money. Contrary to popular belief, because we, you know, the pendulum swings and the prosperity gospel is so evil that we, we react to it. Right, here's what I want you to hear me say. The very first thing God told you to do was go make stuff, go architect the earth, go create human flourishing, and go be wildly successful and change the world. I think God is all for business. He created you and designed you to do great things. The problem was not their business or their profitability. The problem was is that their jobs became the main thing. That became the ends in and of itself. You ever heard the term mission drift? This is what had happened to the first century church, y'all. They started off so zealous for God. They were the very first ones. They were the ones that decided they were going to leverage their lives for the kingdom of God, to bring earth, kingdom, God's kingdom down on earth as it is in heaven. And slowly, they began to do the exact opposite. They began to build their kingdom instead of God's. 
See, we do the same thing oftentimes. The moment you and I came to faith, I don't know about you, but I was pretty zealous for God. I didn't know anything about the scriptures, but what I did know is that God had radically changed my life, and I wanted to tell everybody I could about him. Then I go to seminary, I become a pastor, and now I'm like, you can't do that. you got to have relational evangelism. Like, it's kind of offensive and weird, and we, we become in, so inoculated by culture that we actually have mission drift. Some of you guys, you went to a youth camp one day, and I think in the 90s, you were supposed to throw a stick in the fire or something, and that, that's how you came to faith, and then, and then you were so, like, on fire for God. And then little by little by little, life happened, and you stopped. James is saying, James is saying, you can't do that. Look, faith works. Faith works when we plan our lives and God is involved. He goes on, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Here's the main problem when you think about it. It's super practical. You ready? Time is a gift that is not guaranteed. Hey, here, here's what I mean by that. We, we spend the most of our time planning our lives around a commodity that God just doesn't Guarantee you. Y'all, this week was one of the hardest weeks that we've had in a long time. On Saturday, I was at my daughter's lacrosse game when one of my best friend's wives called me up and she said, hey, Mark took a turn for the worse. Um, You need to come down here and come see him. I got in the car, drove several hours down, spent the day with my buddy, and then he died on Sunday. We drove back down on Tuesday. I officiated his funeral on Wednesday, came back, wrote a sermon here on Sunday, and it's just been an incredibly challenging week and a reminder, time is not guaranteed. Two high school kids that he leaves behind and a beautiful wife, and time is not guaranteed. One of the best books I've read recently It's a time management book, actually, called 4,000 Weeks, because that's the average time span that most of us will live on this earth. And here's the main point of the book, so you don't even have to buy it. Stop leveraging your life for a future that's not guaranteed at the expense of now. That's what he says. He, He goes on, and he says, what if we slow down? He gives this example. It's always stuck with me. Like, what if you just slow down and held your baby for a little bit? He goes on, you know, all the experts say, you don't hold your baby, put him down in the crib, like, let him cry it out. You know, he says, that, that might sound good, but it's quite enjoyable to hold your baby. And you're never going to get to do that again. Y'all, I'll be the first one to tell you, it's taken me four kids to realize this. Maybe I'm a bad dad, I don't know. But for my first three kids, can I just be honest with you, I hated the infant stage. Hated it. Like, they cried all the time. They didn't want me. I didn't have the tools necessary like my wife, right? So every time I held them, they're like sucking on my arm. Like, where's, this, where's the one who can actually provide for me? Not you. They're up all night. You hold them. They cry. They don't talk to you. It took me having my fourth to realize if I could just hold my nine-year-old, almost nine-year-old daughter one more time like that, right? Emma's nine going on 25. When she was two, I couldn't wait for her to talk. Now she won't stop talking. And I'm just like... I hold Keller, my, my youngest, and I don't, I, I just hold him and enjoy him. And you know what? All the rest of it will take care of itself. But I don't want to miss out on the enjoyable gift of the present. Listen to me, you aren't guaranteed tomorrow, so you need to live for today. But I'm not talking about living aimlessly. I'm talking about living intentionally. And you know what I'm saying? God's not against your planning. God is against presumption. That, there's a major difference there. You should plan and you should be wise, but you should do so with intentionality as you seek the Lord and not presume that everything's going to be okay with your life. You should live with open-handed posture that says, God, I will plan for the future, 
but I'll do so with an open hand because you might change and I just want to trust you. Y'all, there is a way to live and that is intentional and there's a way to live that just goes on. And the main problem that James saw in these believers is they lived as if God didn't exist. They, they, lived, they lived as if every decision in their life was compartmentalized. And I just think that this is what I see so often in our cultural South is that we know the right things to say. If I were to sit down with you and ask you to explain the gospel, you could give me the A's, the B's, and the C's of the gospel. You can even say, Jesus in my place, or he lived your perfect life and died your death. He rose from the dead. Like, we, we know everything to say, and yet when we examine our lives, we do everything as if he doesn't exist. They live like functional atheists. That's what James is saying. They, you live like a functional atheist whenever you don't live with God in mind in everything that you do. When you live with Jesus at the center of your life, you begin to leverage your life, and every decision you make is a kingdom decision. Here's the principle we talk about around here a lot. We want you to do the things you're already doing and do it with gospel intentionality. See, somewhere along the way, we've created this dichotomy. Like, I'm the varsity level Christian. You're the JV level. I'm the professional Christian. You're not. I'm sacred. You're secular. You know, all that's a bunch of baloney. According to the Bible, hey Siri, (laughs) according to the Bible, everybody in this room has a sacred calling. All of you. You are God's game plan to change the world. You don't need to sell all your stuff and go to Burma. What you need to do is you need to recognize that you already are a missionary. And you need to start living like it. Like, what if you viewed work like your work was a, sec- a sacred thing that you did? So when God called you to go sell insurance, he did that for the glory of God to create human flourishing in this world. What if you took every leverage, every resource that you had and you leveraged it, your time, your talent, your energy, to work hard to create good jobs and good people in this world? Or when you coach your kids' sports teams, y'all... Sometimes, so I coach lacrosse for my oldest daughter, and sometimes I sit on the sideline, I'm like, bro, they're eight years old. Why are you yelling at them like that? Parents losing their ever-loving mind over a 14-year-old referee that got paid $25 to come out here, and she's scared to death of you. And sometimes I'm like, what if I viewed those kids, the coaches, and the parents as people that I got to influence by how I lived and how I responded with the gospel? What if you viewed your kids not as a clump of cells that evolved over time after you and your wife had one passion and I together, and you viewed them as a gift from God to be stewarded because they're made in the image of God, and he's called you to make them good human beings in this world. And then one day you shoot them off into the world and they get to live with gospel intentionality. Literally everything you do in life matters. Everything. If you are a stay-at-home mom, do it to the glory of God. If you run a company, do it to the glory of God. If you're a police officer, do it to the glory of God. You have to start seeing your calling that God has given you and you have to see that you are God's plan A to change the world. Listen, the most important thing you can do with your life, the most important thing you can do with your life is take the time to consider God in every decision that you make and see that all of it's intentional. It is worthwhile asking the question. It's worthwhile asking the question, everything you do, God, did you call me to do this? What if, I mean, if it's true, if it's true that God is the most important thing in your life, isn't it worth it to ask God before you move or before you take that job? Like, God, what, what have you put in front of me? What if God is calling you not to take the promotion because he's called you to be a part of a church plant in this area and to give your life in that moment? See, what, what, if, 
what if he's called you really to go sell all your stuff? Because, you know, like I can't go to places like Saudi Arabia, but what if, you're, what if God has called you to pick up your life and move to a place because not only can you go, but your company is going to pay you to go and you become the most strategic missionary in the world. You are fully funded and you go, you build prosperity, you build intentionality, you build business, and you build the gospel in places that I can never go. Isn't it worth just asking God, God, have you called me to do that? What if God has called you not to do those things? What if he's called you just to do what you already do? See, I'm not going to tell you that either of those things are true, but what I want you to do is I want you to begin to ask the question. Because here's the deal for most of us. For most of us, if we are honest, we're just too busy to do that. You you wake up at 5 a.m. You go work out, you read your Bible for 10 minutes, you wake your kids up, you make them lunch, you get them off to school, you go to work, you deal with problem after problem after problem until you get home, pick up your kids, get them dressed, go to practice, come back home, take a shower, take their, do their homework, put them to bed, just enough time to veg out for Netflix for 30 minutes and go to sleep and do it all again the next day. No, I get it. Life is hard. It is busy and it is complicated. But let me just tell you something, pastorally, It's taken me a long time to figure this out, but I I just want to tell you this. Guys, you always do the thing you ultimately want to do. I've watched some of us get off of airplanes, cancel meetings to show up at our kids' baseball game because we wanted to do that. The, the, The real question is, is am I creating the margin to do the things that I ultimately want to do, the ultimately things that God has called me to do? It's the most important question you can ask. Because at the end of the day, we can hide behind busyness. Listen, we, we wear busyness like a badge, like a virtue. It's not. It's not all that impressive either. But the reality is, is all of us are busy. The question is, is are you doing the things that God has ultimately called you to do? One of the most practical pieces of advice I can give you is this. Not everything under heaven has your name on it. And it takes a lot of humility and maturity to get past the FOMO of feeling like you're going to miss out on something because you're so confident that God has called you to do this that you're going to leverage your life for that. Right? That means that when you are walking with God, you see the world differently. Maybe, 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 just maybe you don't drive the nicest car because you want to have the margin to have generosity to where God has called you to invest in the kingdom of God. Or you don't do every travel sports team. Because you value the community that you have with your family around the dinner table. Maybe you don't go on every vacation every time we're out of school because you want to save in order to go and leverage your life to go on one of these short-term trips. Like, by the way, Joy in the back and Joey are going to the Dominican Republic to partner with our missionaries next week. Thank you for doing that. What you're doing is you are seeing that God has put you in a story bigger than your own. God's people leverage their lives by intersecting their lives with God and doing it with intentionality, and that makes all the difference. So let me be real practical, and I want to give you a paradigm, a a, a prism that I think through whenever I make decisions. It's really four things. Here it is. Number one is affinity. Here's what I think that. God has often given us the passions to do the things that we do. You know they say statistically that people... um, would rather die than public speak. So if you ever go to a funeral, they'd rather be the guy in the casket than the guy giving the eulogy, right? The reality is this, is I'm, I'm different. Like, I enjoy doing this. You probably, you, you wouldn't want to do this to save your life. That means don't do it. God has given each of us a passion or an affinity towards certain things, and we should leverage our lives for those affinities. Now, that's number one. You've got to balance it with this. Number two is ability. 
right? Your affinity and your ability need to match. If they don't, something's wrong, right? You're five foot four, 140 pounds. You feel called to play in the NFL. You might want to go study math because you're probably not going to play in the NFL. I just I want to be honest with you, right? Sometimes we have the affinity to go play in the NFL. We don't have the ability to go play in the NFL. Therefore, we're not called to play in the NFL. See how that works? So let me tell you something. In real life, I, again, just want to be pastoral. You often think you're better at something than you are. So you need to have people that you love and trust that can speak into your life too. You might think you're a great public speaker and everybody else is like, you just invite, invite that in, which leads to number three is community. Community. So you have the affinity, you have the ability. Does your church community think you should do it. This is, this is one of the most neglected things you see, and yet all the way through Scripture, it is evident that God reveals callings through the church community. And here's a big red flag, by the way. When you're processing a decision-making thing, and you don't ask people around you because you know that they're going to tell you you're crazy, that's a red flag that you probably shouldn't do it. When was the last time before you made a crucial decision in your life that you came to the elders of your church or your small group leader and you asked them, hey, this is what's in front of me. It seems like I have the ability to do it. I have a desire to do it. Do you think it's a good idea that we sell our house and move? Do you think it's a good idea that I take this job? Number four is responsibility. So you have those three things. Here's what I mean by responsibility is God has given all of us God-given responsibilities which means that those are primary. Here's what I mean. If you're married, God has not called you to sell all of your stuff and be a homeless person on the side of the road or move to sub-Saharan Africa where you can't feed your kids. He hasn't called you to divorce your wife and marry the girl at the office. There are certain God-given responsibilities, and I don't care how much you feel like you should do those things, you should not do them. However, calling is quite fluid in God's mind, so if you have the affinity, then you have the ability and your community thinks you should do it, and it doesn't negate any of your other God-given responsibilities, go do it. Oftentimes, you won't even know what you're good at until you go try it. That's how God works. I want you to do the things that God has called you to do, and that happens when you're passionately processing and pursuing the callings that God has on your life, and you are praying to him and asking him to reveal that through the people around you. That is one of the most practical ways that you can figure out what you are called to do. All right, now let's get to the heart of the matter of what James calls wisdom. Look at it. What is your life? What is your life? For you are a midst that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Now here's what James is saying. A life worth living happens when you understand the brevity of life. Moses, Moses writes Psalm 90, and at the end of Psalm 90, here's what he says. He says, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. All the way through Psalm 90, he says, God, the flowers fade, the grass withers, but the word of God lasts forever. A day in your sight is like a thousand years, but to us, it is gone like that. One of the wisest things you can do is what James says. James says your life is like walking outside in a brisk fall morning and seeing the breath come out in front of you, and then it vanishes so quickly. Y'all, life is short. Life is short, so don't waste it. Here's one of the most profound things, the most profound wise truths you can remember is life is brief. And one of the most practical things I can tell you is don't wait until tomorrow to do what God has called you to do today. See, Jesus, Jesus gives this parable. And, and he talks to this guy who, um, who honestly, by all measures, was probably a pretty wise guy. As a matter of fact, I mean, 
Nolan's a financial planner. He's probably going to do anything that, like he's doing what you would tell him. He's at his Roth IOA, or uh, whatever it is, 401ks and all these other things uh, that are going on. And, and, and he starts saving up the accumulation of his stuff. I want to presume, maybe for good reasons, right? He's got kids in the future. And, and he takes everything to a storehouse. And Jesus comes up to him and he says, you fool. You fool, do you not realize that your very life is going to be taken tonight? Basically what Jesus is saying, why didn't you just leverage your assets for the people around you to make a difference? Instead, you trusted in yourself, you stored for yourself, and then you missed out on something. You know, I've done, I've done my fair share of funerals throughout the years. And the reality is, for some odd reason, maybe it's because we're young and we're a young church, most of the funerals I do are people who died way too young. Y'all, I'm not good at statistics, but the last I checked, I think the death rate in America is still about 100%. And I think we're the first generation ever that has a shorter life expectancy than the generation before it. Maybe all those cheeseburgers and processed foods weren't a good idea. Here's the thing that I've never seen at any funeral that I've ever done. I've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul being dragged behind it. Never seen anybody taking their possessions with them. You know why? Because none of that stuff matters. One of the saddest conversations I have with people is the conversation when people get to the end of their life, they're retiring, and then they say, they look at me and say, Billy, I wish I'd have did it differently. I wish I wouldn't have spent my entire life climbing the corporate ladder because I got up to the top of the building and only realized it was leaning up against the wrong wall the entire time. I wish I would have did things differently. Here's the deal. We, and again, I don't want to be morbid, but we're all going to die one day. And nobody, nobody, nobody is going to care about your high school MVP, your GPA in high school, or the job title that you had. No, what they're going to do is they're going to show up, they're going to kick some dirt on top of your grave, they're going to come back to the church, say a couple nice words about you, and eat some potato salad. Nobody's going to care about that stuff. What they're going to care about is the deposits that you made into the people around you. Like I told my buddy this week, my 15-year-old friend who's working on the car with his dad that's going to be his his first car, and he's crying, and he's like, I don't know how I'm going to finish this. Hey, buddy, one day you're going to work with your kids on that car, and you're going to tell them, my daddy taught me how to do this, and you're going to take the deposit that he made in your life, and you're going to pass it on to the people around you. What, what you have to understand is that God cares more about how you've deposited your life in the people around you. I told Mark on Saturday, my friend that died, I said, man, your life's way too short, but I would rather live a short life that made a massive impact than a long life that made no impact at all. What kind of impact? What kind of impact are we making? Listen, when you think that when you think about the idea of invincibility and you take that out of your mind, you start living differently. When Jesus See, Jesus didn't die for you to just exist. John 10.10 10 says he wants you to live the abundant life, the life to the fullest now. He, he, wants, he wants to come live inside of you. And I'm not trying to guilt trip you, but the reality is, is none, of us, none, of us really know, none of us really know what tomorrow holds. And if you just wait till tomorrow to do what you should do today and you get tomorrow, you've just wasted today. What if, what if we started living differently today? I'm, the older I get, and I'm not that old, I, I get that, but the older I get, man, it feels like life is warp speed. It was like yesterday, I was holding my first daughter and she's about to be nine. Right? It, it, I mean, just, just last week, I'm, I'm with Jim, and we're in North Carolina. We stopped at Cracker Barrel. They had Christmas stuff out. It's October. 
Like, I just paid $12 for my pumpkin spice latte at Starbucks. Can I just enjoy that for two minutes before we guys start buying our Christmas stuff? It's like, it all goes like this. We're on to the next thing before we even get done with this thing, right? It's warp speed. The only I get, it feels like every day is a minute and every year is a day. Here's the question I have for you is, are you going to live for the temporary or are you going to leverage for the eternal? That's the most practical and most important question you can ask yourself. Am I going to live for the temporary or leverage for the eternal? Verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or we will do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Here's what James is saying. When you plan your life, like, if you will, a functional atheist, as if God doesn't exist, what you are doing is you are assuming that you are all-knowing. And that is a pretty prideful thing to do. Not only is it prideful, like James says, it actually becomes quite evil because you cut God out of the equation. What if, what if we stop for just a second, we just asked God what his will was for our life in whatever situation we're in? Do you know how much different our decisions would look? Like, what if we asked God, should I date that girl? Should I marry that guy? Before we actually did it, what if we asked God how we should spend our time and our resources? What if, what if our bank accounts reflected having the margin to respond to generosity whenever those things happen? Here's what I know. I know that life is brief. Life is brief and uncertain, but God is sovereign. Life is brief. That's James's point. And there's uncertainty, but God is sovereign. Listen, you might not know what tomorrow holds, and I know this is cliche, but you really do know the one who holds tomorrow. You hear what I'm saying? You need to know this. You need to know who God is because you can trust him. That is a really, really, really peaceful place to be. Guys, let me just be honest. This year, 2022, has been the year from hell for the low house. Sometimes I'm like 2020, hold my... Well, if you're Baptist, you can't say beer. So, um, Coca-Cola. May 2nd, my wife calls me. She says, I think my water broke at like 25 weeks or whatever. Spent the next two months in the hospital worried about infection, worrying about our son. Who would be born too early? He could die. She could die. COVID rules. My kids can't go into the hospital. Um, so, I become a single dad for the next several months. He's born. He spends a couple weeks in the NICU, which brings on a whole different set of circumstances. During that time, my engine on the car blew up. I did a funeral in this building for a 20-year-old girl who took her own life. My, one of my best friends dies of cancer. My kids develop a stuttering problem because of the PTSD that they've had. Uh, we've gone through issue after issue after issue, and I don't tell you that to make you feel bad for me. What I tell you that for is I want you to know how fragile life is. On May 1st, I woke up and nothing was wrong. On May 2nd, my life was turned upside down for the next several months. And listen, if you don't understand the fragility of life, you will get into an arrogant place of real, just believing that everything's always going to be okay. And it might be. But what God wants you to do is he wants you to lean into your fragility because your fragility helps you to lean into your dependence on him. Y'all, to live as, you, as if you are invincible is either immature or arrogant. Fragility is a gift that makes you lean back into God. It's a gift that drives you back to the source of joy. It is a gift because it helps you to understand that your life is short, so don't take it for granted. What if we slow down for just a second and we ask God, what, God, what is the will that you have for my life? 
you will never regret spending your life on God's will. I promise you that. You might not see it. You might not see it for years. It might be like the bamboo underneath the surface, but one day, if you will keep going, it will sprout up and you will see God's faithfulness in your life. And here's the one thing that you will realize is maybe this life is short, but life itself is not. Life is eternal, and the impacts that you are making are not for the 70 or 80 years that you will live here, but it is for the eternity that you will enjoy with Jesus. Y'all, you are depositing something into this world, something greater. And don't miss what James is saying. Watch this. The solution to your forgetfulness is to remember the Lord. Now, I know. You're like, thanks, Captain, obvious. But it's not that obvious. We are very, very, very forgetful people. We do it all the time. Don't believe me? What did you have for lunch last Tuesday? Probably couldn't tell me. Some of you in this room don't even remember when your anniversary was. You know, sometimes these Facebook memories come up on, on my social media, and, and it's, a, it's such a blur that I don't even remember the memories that I thought were so vital with my kids. There's a 1,000% chance that my wife will lose her keys today four times. And we're going to get frustrated. Because what ends up happening is if you don't have this active skill of practicing remembering, you will ultimately forget. We are some of the most forgetful people, and honestly, we're pretty prideful about it. What we need to do is we need to have the humility to recognize our fragility and then practice remembering. You know, this is what God told the nation of Israel over and over and over and over again. Every time that he did something faithful to them or for them, what he said is, hey, as they cross the Jordan River, set up these stones of remembrance because you will forget and one day you're going to need to come back to this place and when you come back to this place and your kids ask about it, I want you to remember, what if you did the same thing? What if every time you saw God do something good in your life, you set up these stones, or these Ebenezers, these stones of remembrance, so that you said, no, God, you were faithful. Because there are going to be moments in your life when you're going to hit the valley of despair, and you're going to need to go back to what you know to be true. And if you don't practice remembering, you will forget in the most crucial of times. So what if you just wrote them down and you put them places? What if you recalled the scriptures to your friends and you had them do it with you too? Y'all, most of history repeats itself because we stop remembering. So we just do the same things over and over again. You need to take the time to recall the things of God and the goodness of God in your life. That's number one, remember. Here's the second one, develop a prayer life. You, You realize prayer is the most profound thing you can do because what prayer does is it connects you with the heart of God and then it begins to change you. Samuel Chadwick, I, I love what he says. Listen to what he says. Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. The God of the universe hears your prayers. He unites you to himself through your prayers. So what if, as we remember, we depend on him by praying? Here's the next one. One of the most godly things you can do, guys, is take a nap. And I mean that. You know, you know what sleep does? It reminds you that you're not eternal. And that's, that's the wrong word. You are eternal. It reminds you that you are not perfect, sovereign. See, God built in a natural rhythm of rest into your life 
so that you can be reminded that the one who doesn't rest, the one who is in control, is actually the one who's in control. That's why one of the most godly things you can do is take a nap. If you never sleep, you don't sleep because you don't trust God. Sleep is a built-in dependence mechanism. It's a gift from God. See, here's the thing. Not only do you need a good night's sleep, some of you just need to rest, intentionally rest from trying to be superhero all the time. I know some of you work really hard because you're hard workers, but others of you work really hard because you have a control problem. So you never let it go. You don't give it away because you have to be the one that's in control of everything. Listen, if you never rest and you always work, what ends up happening is your work ends up owning you and you become a taskmaster or enslaved to the one thing that you wanted to have control over. It controls you. If you don't intentionally remember God and everything that you do, you will revert back to making your own decisions, and you'll do it without him. So I know I say this all the time, but the best way that you can make this deposit back into your life, the best way you can do what James is talking about is this, is to remember the gospel. Tim Keller, I love this. He says, he says the gospel is not like the diving board into Christianity. It's not like you prayed a prayer and you dove in and you're all good. He says it's the pool that you go deeper and deeper and deeper into every single day. You remember the gospel. And as you remember the gospel, as you decide daily to live for him, as you bring heaven down on earth as it is in heaven, what you begin to see is you posture your life differently because the Christian faith is an act of faith. It's a posture that submits to God and goes deeper into him every day. You invite heaven down. You steward your life for God's kingdom. You live dependently, not independently. And that changes everything. Listen, you don't need to quit your job to become a missionary. You just need to realize that you already are a missionary. That God has already placed you where you are. He's given you the skills that you have. And he wants you to leverage your life to bring his kingdom down. I'm telling you, this is a game changer. When you get the gospel that Jesus died not only to save you, but to empower you by putting his spirit inside of you, he did that not just so you would die one day and go to heaven. He did that so that you can actually experience joy today and change the world around you. You should memorize Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's the Great Commission. It's the very last thing that Jesus says before he dies, or before he raises us back to heaven, sorry. Listen to what he says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is saying, I have all authority, complete authority in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples. Disciples are followers of Jesus. Make disciples of all nations. That's, that's the Greek word ethnes. It's literally all people groups. It means maybe to Saudi Arabia, but maybe just next door teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them to uh, all that I've commanded you, and behold, this is the best part, I am with you to the very end of the age. You see what he's saying? I'm with you. I'm doing this alongside of you. Notice that the authority that God has given you is to empower you to go change the world. You are a missionary, every one of you. And if you will spend your life intentionally doing the things you're already doing and do it with gospel intentionality, well, that would be a life well lived. James wraps up this section in verse 17. Listen to what he says. So whoever knows the right things to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let me just ask you, do you know the right things to do for you? You hear, you hear what I said. I'm not asking you if you know the right things to do. Do you know the right things to do for you? Because listen, we all have different right things. 
God has called me uniquely to pastor City Church to love Allison and to be a father to my four kids. He has not called you to do that. Do you know what God has called you to do? Have you taken the time to explore that? To simply ask the question. To put your yes on the table and ask God to put it on the map. God, where are you calling me to go? What are you calling me to do? If you don't know, I'd love to invite you to explore that. Explore that with your small group. Explore that with your community. If you do know, go do it. Expect great things from God and do great things for God. Because here's the deal. You know what you can't control? Tomorrow. Do you know what you don't know? Tomorrow. Do you know what you can control? Today. Today. See, Jesus is saying, stop worrying about what you can't control. Let God worry about that. And worry about what you can control today. So let me just ask you, are you living for Jesus? Now, I didn't ask you if you, if you know him intellectually. Are you living for him? Have you submitted yourself to him? Does he have control over your life? Or are you just going through the motions? The point of James's entire message is this. Life is shorter than you think it is, so don't be too busy for God. The gospel is that Jesus did die in your place. He wasn't too busy for you. He did live your perfect life. He did substitute himself for you so that now every time that God sees you, he sees Christ's righteousness in you. You don't have anything to prove. You are already good enough. You were designed with a purpose, like Paul says. You are God's worksmanship, his poema, his poetry, created in Christ Jesus. Now go leverage your life for the things that God has called you to do. Jesus lived in your place. And he wants you to belong, belong to community. And then he wants you to see your life as someone he has sent to change the world. And look, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing more important than those two things. Belonging to community and living sent. That is the essence of the Christian life. And it's a mindset, it's a posture that says, Jesus, I am yours. It's time to stop planning and to start living. And if you think that you are too busy to do this, I just want to tell you, you are too busy. Are you, it's too important not to do it. The best investment you will ever make in your life is to ask the question, God, where do you want me to go? When do you want me to do it? And how do you want me to do it?